If you will please stand with me as we read. I'm not going to read all both the chapters, but I am going to read the first of seven letters and the last of seven letters, just to give us a taste of the beginning and the end. It should uh, help us to see what is it that Christ says to his church and what does he say to us today. As we read through um, uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, 1 through 7, and then the letter to the church in Laodicea in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and following. I want you to listen for a pattern. And this, this rings true of all seven letters. Listen for a pattern. Christ will reveal himself, and then he will either confront or commend the church he speaks to. Then he will call them to do something. And then finally, he will offer them a reward if they heed his call. Listen for those things. So we read Revelation 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He reveals himself. That's who he is. I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance. He's commending the church in Ephesus. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He commends them, and then he confronts them. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. That's his call. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, he's offering a reward. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then the last letter, chapter 3, verse 14. Listen for that same pattern of revealing himself and, and then commending or confronting, calling them to something, and then offering a reward. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable. Poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing all that time. I don't time it before I do it, so thank you for your uh, patience. And I'll just ask you for a smidge more as we cover seven of these letters in one sermon. Um, We have seven specific messages from Jesus to seven particular local churches. But I I hope you already heard uh, in in chapter chapter 2 at the end of that first letter, in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to know he also says that at the end of every other letter. Verse 11, talking to Smyrna, he who has an ear, let him hear what I just said. And the Spirit is saying as well to the rest of the churches. It it goes this way throughout the whole passage. So as we walk through each of these calls that Jesus has for each of his churches in in John's day, I I think what you're going to experience is that some of them are going to feel especially relevant to us as a church. And this is mainly to us as a church. There are sometimes you come to sermons, come to passages where they're mainly speaking about you, singular. But what what rings true uh, about uh, the book of Revelation is this is written to local churches. That's how Christ gets his word to individual Christians is because he just assumes they're committed to local churches. So this is mainly going to have to do with how Christians live in community with one another. And some of them are going to feel especially relevant, but all of them, all of the calls that he gives to each one are for all of his churches. Because he's saying, the Spirit is saying this to all of the churches. You should listen. Now, I wonder if you've ever been invited to go to a, um, uh, a church conference. You know, if you went to a church conference where they were trying to talk about how is it that we can have a great church. Uh, some of you may have even been to a church or a conference like that. Many of you have not and will never go to a conference where all we're talking about is how to have a great church. But some of you may have been in rooms with church leaders where you're having a conversation. How can we have a great church? And maybe all of you have an opinion a list about what makes a great church. Well, I want us to think about all these seven letters as if we just walked into one of those conferences. And we've come to the portion where there's a Q&A. And on the stage, we have seven senior pastors, maybe of each of these seven churches. And their session is called Seven calls for all churches. Where they're asked the question one by one. What would you say is one commitment that every church should have in order to honor the Lord Jesus Christ? 
I think if we listen to those seven senior pastors, there would be a theme that would emerge from everything that they say. And it's kind of the point, you could say, the summary of, of all seven of these letters, and that's this. If we respond to Christ's calls, we will collect his rewards. If we respond to the calls that he makes to each of these seven churches, then we will receive also the rewards that he's promising to each of these seven churches. I want everyone here to recognize that these rewards, if they sound good to you, they are in the churches that are faithful to Christ. And so if your list of what you're looking for in a church doesn't include these calls, if these seven commitments aren't the things you're praying for for your church, I want to encourage you to add them to your list. Well, let's hear each one of the seven calls in turn. First of all, we have the the pastor to the church of Ephesus is past the mic at this Q&A. And what he says to us is, don't leave love behind. That's the summary call of what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Don't leave love behind. The pastor could sit up here and tell us that that Christ gave his church nine encouragements. Above all that, the church in Ephesus was a lampstand that shined brightly in a dark world. They, they, they had lots of truth. Ephesus was the seminary, you could say, for the apostles of John's day. Nine encouragement Jesus hands out to this church. And only one correction. It's there again in verse 4. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Because if you don't, it doesn't matter how bright you are. I'll remove you as a church. You'll no longer be considered my church. If you don't change and return to works of love. Redeemer Church, don't leave love behind. Well, what is love? Um, in the 90s, I remember being told uh, or being asked that question, what is love? And then the answer came, baby, don't hurt me. And baby, don't hurt me. No mo. Uh, love, that's pretty representative of the way that this world views love. It's doing whatever it takes to get people to feel good, to not hurt them. Well, that's not what love is. Love is not meeting every single person's definition of what they think they need or the requirements they lay out for feeling good. And love, certainly, Jesus would not call us to a kind of love that leaves behind truth or compromises beliefs in him. And it doesn't matter to Jesus just how offensive our faithful beliefs are to other people who might be used to selfishness, who might be so-called progressives. Well, what is love? 
Here it is, biblically. And you, if you've been around this church, I've said this before, but this is a good time to remind you. This is love, biblically. I give what I have that you need because God wants me to, no matter how I feel. Let me give that to you again. This is love. And this is what Christ is calling his churches to. A lifestyle that demonstrates I give what I have that you need because God wants me to. No matter how I feel. That is the call from Christ to us. And it's nothing more than the call to live like him. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus loved, that is to say that he gave what he had that we needed because God wanted him to no matter how he felt. Jesus gave to us, beloved. And this this giving love should characterize us as a church and should never be left behind. He gave what we needed, what we lacked. Righteousness he had. A life that pleased the Father, that we were supposed to live but did not live. We needed it, he had it, and he gave it. His death he gave because we needed it. We were going to face an eternity in hell for all of our sins. Well, how can one man's death pay for an eternity worth of guilt? Well, that man is also God. He had deity. He had the ability to take all of God's anger and wrath for our personally committed sins against him. And he gave it. Because God wanted him to. God wanted him to. No matter how Jesus felt about it. And Jesus had feelings about it. Facing it. The awful reality of bearing an eternity of sin, of sin and shame and rejection. And God wanted him to and he did it. God puts us, believers, when you trust in that Savior, God puts us in a church in order to put us in situations where we have what someone else needs. And God wants us in those moments to give it to them. And he wants us to do it when we don't feel like it. That's what Christ is saying. He wants us whenever a member is injured and needs groceries. Whenever a member is moving and needs help. 
whenever a member is celebrating a special day and, and invites you to bless and celebrate with them. Whenever a member is facing sin and struggles and sadness and the devastating effects of living faithfully in this world and you pray for them and you encourage them, keep doing it, Redeemer. Don't leave love behind. When Christ calls, we must listen. Never give up on giving yourself. So that we would get the reward, it says in verse 7, that we would live in the land of love, to live in the paradise of God with God. That's the first call. But then the mic is passed down the line and we have a second call from the pastor in Smyrna. And he would say to us, based on this letter in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, he would say, be true to the end. Be true to the end. Uh, This pastor, when when he gets the mic, he wouldn't put up with any of the prosperity gospel. That's what you would be hearing from this fella. He wouldn't put up with any of it. He wouldn't put up with any suggestion from anyone else on the stage that suffering is the proof of sin. He wouldn't put up with it. He wouldn't put up with any kind of idea that obedience to Jesus is going to remove hardship. Smyrna is suffering. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know your troubles and your poverty and they're slandering you and it's not because that they're they're being unfaithful it's it's because they're the opposite of that jesus said but you are rich my view of you is you are rich in grace and righteousness and i want you to notice where the suffering comes from it's not coming from muslims It's not coming from left-wing nut jobs, you know, because of their policies persecuting all the saints. It's coming from what's called here the synagogue of Satan. And that's the Jewish people, the religious people, the people who are following the right God in the wrong way because Jesus is not their light. I want you to hear me. It is possible to claim that you know and follow the one true God. It is possible for you to therefore be very zealous and moral. And you could be serving Satan. They're called the synagogue of Satan. The gathering of Satan's worshipers. One sign that you're in that that congregation would be that religion that you have is leading to you accusing the faithful, those who are most faithful to Christ. And then if you look in verse 10, you're going to see something that is very sobering. And if you'll let it, it will be very stabilizing. Look in verse 10. Jesus doesn't say, You're suffering because of righteousness. And because you're righteous, I'm going to call all the dogs off of you. Instead, he says in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's about to get worse. 
The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested in for 10 days. That's not 10 literal days. That's a fullness of days that may be the rest of their life. That's what 10 represents in the book of Revelation. And so he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the reward of the crown of life. What he's saying is you, you need to die in total faithfulness. That's what it means to conquer over and over when you hear patiently endure. Be true to the very end. Be faithful to me no matter what your end is. In Redeemer Church, we as a church have faced times of accusation for righteousness. And we may again face times of accusations and hardship because of faithfulness. And Christ is calling us, be faithful to the end. Be true to the end. Because, look back in verse 8, how he revealed himself. I am the first and the last. I died. And then I came to life. And so he says in verse 11, if you will be true to the end, the second death is not going to hurt you. The one that lasts forever and ever and eternity. The second death into hell. You won't go there if you're true to the end. And if I could... Get one word to the youngest people here. To the children who are here. It would be this word. Be true to the end. That's what it means to be a Christian. Because you're going to have, maybe now and maybe later, lots of friends. And there are lots of churches that you're going to meet where they're going to say, it's normal for Christians To go in and out of faithfulness to God. To have seasons where you just don't care at all about God. To go through long years of time where you don't think about him at all. You will have people in your life who who think about Christianity almost like it's a sport that you can take a year off of. Christianity is not like that. Real Christians are true to the end. I'm not saying that we're perfect, that we don't go through seasons of struggle to believe or struggles with sin. But our default and our normal trajectory is to be faithful and trusting to the very end. There's a third call that comes to us from the pastor of Pergamum. That's in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And, and he gets on the stage and he says, get rid of false teaching. Get rid of false teaching. Now, I want you to know you could recommend confidently that your friends and family go to the church in Pergamum. It says there in verse uh, 13, it says uh, there, there's a lot that they have. For them in verse 13. Even though Satan rules over that city. They're holding fast to the name of Jesus. They're not denying the faith. They're being faithful witnesses. Even when Antipas is killed for the faith. You could recommend to your family and friends. To go to this church. And be happy about what's going to happen to them. Unless they go to certain Sunday school classes. Certain small groups. 
because of the teaching there. Look in verse 14. I have a few things against you. The teaching of Balaam that leads to idolatry and immorality. In verse 15, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, I'm not going to take the time to unpack what's going on with Balaam or the Nicolaitans. But just understand this. It leads. Their teaching, there are teachings and churches that are led by self-serving teachers and their, their teachings will lead to self-centered lives. To worshiping the wrong God and to offending him and to being condemned by Christ. Verse 12, Jesus introduced himself to this church as the one who had the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. If you remember from last week, that's a threat of judgment. And it says in verse 16, when he says to the church, if you don't repent, I'm going to come with that sword and I'm going to come against you. If you don't get rid of the false teaching. So our church. We have to be really careful never to look for teachers who just say what pleases us. What can get more people pleased. What makes us feel good about us? And, and, and a word to you, if you're not a teacher, whenever you hear teaching, whenever you hear preaching that confronts you directly, you should get rid of every thought in your head, every, everything in your heart, every habit in your life that is in conflict with what God's word says. Because Christ has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And he will war with people whose life leads in a direction away from him. For us as a church, in this season even where we are praying for more elders who are primarily teachers of the word. When we are spending so much effort raising up more Elders, uh, this point is especially good for us to remember. We should always be concerned with the call to get rid of false teaching. Seven calls for all churches. We've seen three. Here comes the fourth from Thyatira. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 29 the call is don't ignore immorality don't ignore immorality learn learn from this church listen because when this pastor was past the mic i'm sure he would have said we had hoped that when our Savior came close to us and evaluated us, he would have been impressed. But instead, what he said in verse 18 to us is he came as the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And We knew that wasn't a good sign. Because what those blazing eyes of Jesus see, and they see everything. 
is enough to activate that foot of bronze to raise it up and crush them. Look in verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. This is a teacher in their church. It's a woman who's teaching in their church who's like Jezebel, who seduces Christians away from faithfulness to then idolatry and immorality. That's the focus, immorality. Which is sexual activity outside of marriage. That's what it is. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Jesus sees it and he's not ignoring it. How many churches are ignoring immorality? In the name of love. In the name of grace. In the name of judge not lest ye be judged. There, sexual activity outside of marriage will not keep you from leadership. In those kinds of churches, they may not even, not just overlook adultery, but they ignore immorality and the things that lead to adultery. Just fine watching things. Movies, shows that they think are fine because it's fiction, it's entertainment. Not understanding that all the while they're being desensitized and paving the way for more. Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her that teaching, that woman who's teaching and leading I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. She's continuing in her sexual immorality. And look at what he says. He's not ignoring it. I will throw her on a sickbed. And everyone who does what she does, I'm throwing on the sickbed. And I will give much trouble if they don't repent of her works. And I'll strike her children dead. Everyone who follows her, everyone who's born of her, Jesus revealed himself to this church. He said, I am the son of God. And the reason he revealed himself that way to this church is because the people in that city worshipped their highest God was Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. Son of the high God. And he shows up to them and he says, I am the son of God. And Apollo, their highest God in that city, who, who they were being taught it was okay to be honored, to, to honor him. Apollo is the God of health. The God who heals. And Jesus says what? I'm throwing her on a sickbed and she's going to die. You see this? No God can stop me. Your God won't be able to stop me. If we want the reward, we have to listen to the call. And notice, notice what he says is the reward in, in, in verse 26. If you will repent, 
Even if you've given your life to sexual immorality and you're walking in it. In verse 26, he says, if you will repent, if you will conquer and keep my works to the end, I will give you authority over the nations. And then in verse 28, 28, I will give him the morning star. And that sounds weird. I'll give you the morning star. What is that? Well, there's a lot of weird stuff in, in Revelation. Um, here's the key to Revelation. It's the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament. Because the morning star is in the book of Numbers. And the morning star is a king who conquers darkness and all of the powers of darkness. And what he's saying is, I'm coming as the king and I'm going to conquer all the darkness. And if you will conquer, you get me. Not as your judge, but as your loving king. And you will rule with me. That's the reward for those who will not ignore immorality. Don't leave love behind. Be true to the end. Get rid of false teaching. Don't ignore immorality. And then fifth, the pastor of Sardis steps up and he says, don't settle for the illusion of life. He says to the church, this is a call for our church. Don't settle for the illusion of life. Chapter three, verses one through six. I wonder if that pastor on that stage would have been able to speak except through tears. Would would he be there saying, we thought we were doing it right. We meant well and our numbers were telling us that we were doing really well. We were bigger than all the other churches in town. You know, church alive is worth the drive and, and, and the whole community. They were flocking to us. But look in chapter three, verse one, what Jesus says to that church. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Beloved, Jesus doesn't deal in reputations. He deals in reality. And Sardis was the church like we've seen in different seasons in our community. Pops up and it's really popular and exciting. And you ask somebody, well, why are you saying it's so alive? And all their answers seem to be the same kinds of things that people who love this world would list. It's fun. The speakers are impressive. The messages are encouraging. The lighting is awesome. The music is energetic. We feel so great. And Christ comes to the church and he says, I'm not looking for what man looks for. I'm not looking for your reputation of life. I'm looking for a life of repentance. Because notice what he says. He says, your works are dead. You're dead because your works are dead. And then he says, wake up. And what does he specifically call them to do? Keep what you heard. 
What I said to you in that ancient book, what I've told you is right and how you should live. That's what you should do. It's repentance. It's turning away from self. And listening to me, following me. Beloved, hear me. Every church wants to make a difference. We're not here not wanting to make any difference at all. We want to reach as many people as we possibly can for the sake of the Lord. And we also need to remember that popularity has always, always come at a cost. Whether you're a teenager in high school or a church, to get popular, you just have to compromise. Don't settle for the illusion of life. Real life is found in holiness. There's an amen. Real life is found in following the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Even when that leads us to crosses, even when that leads us to losses, that's where life is. Real life is found in trusting that Christ is right. And if we disagree, we're wrong. And if we obey him, that will bring us life. Don't just settle for the illusion of it. Because look at what he offers to us in verse 5. This is the reward that he holds out for us. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Whose name are you living for? Whose reputation do you want? Who do you want to confess your name and talk about how great you are? Is it the world? Even the religious world? Or is it Jesus Christ? I will confess your name, he says. Repent. And you'll have a name with God. And that is a reputation that is worth living for. For those of you who are in high school, you are getting really close to that time where you get more freedom and maybe you're going to even get the freedom soon to choose what church you get to go to. Well, in this sermon, we're laying out in these two chapters seven things to look for in a church. I wonder if you're taking notes. It's hard for you to imagine now at your age just how ruthless and cruel this world is. It may be hard for you to imagine now how hard your life may very soon get. But listen to me. You're going to need Jesus Christ. And you're going to need real power and real life and real joy. And all of those things are in the right churches. So when you go out and you pick that church, don't just listen to what the reputation says. And don't settle for the illusion of life when you can have the real thing.
There are seven calls, and we've got a couple more. Bear with me. The sixth call comes from the pastor of Philadelphia. And he comes in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and he stands up and he says, Listen, churches, do not focus on numbers. Don't focus on numbers. Philadelphia doesn't have the reputation of life in their community. They are little. You see that in chapter 3, verse 8? Chapter 3, verse 8. I know that you have but little power. It's a little church. This guy stands up and he, and he breaks the cardinal rule of church planning. It says don't focus on numbers. He says the one thing that very few church leaders get together and don't talk about. Don't focus on numbers. He says the thing that even little churches are very tempted to focus on. To grow to hate. And that is smallness. Little churches face powerlessness. You are of little power. We face powerlessness in so many ways. Few volunteers. Even the strongest volunteers who are pouring themselves out, they get burned out. Few elders, few staff. And we can get to the point where we're so overwhelmed by the needs and our inabilities. Our genuine desires to do so much good and our absolute inability to get to all the good because we're powerless. Little churches have loads of trouble and loads of discouragement. But the little church in Philadelphia, whatever they were thinking Jesus was going to say to them, Look at what he does say to them. Chapter 3, verse 8. I know you are little, but you have kept my word. And you have not denied my name. And I'm going to make those enemies of yours, the synagogue of Satan, those Jews who are not Jews. I'm going to make them bow down to you. And they're going to learn. Look at the end of verse 9. I have loved you. These letters are shocking. One way that we're at home in this world is how impressed we are with the things of this world. How much we desire the things that the world desires. We desire size. We desire reputation. We desire popularity. We desire ease. Do you know? That out of the seven churches that Christ speaks to, only two of them get zero rebuke. I want you to just take this in. Only two of the churches get total affirmation. Only two of the churches get nothing but encouragement. Hold on. Hold on. I am close. 
You may be discouraged, but hold on. Those two churches are the one that's suffering in Smyrna and little Philadelphia. He says in verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. I'm keeping you from it. I am coming soon in verse 11. Hold on. That's why we're calling the series Hold On. That's why we're calling the series through the book of Revelation Hold On. Christ is close. Back in John's day, whenever churches would gather together, the way they would greet one another is not the how you doing. I'm so regularly not doing great. The way they would greet one another is Maranatha. Christ is coming. And that would be a good idea for us to go up to our brothers and sisters and say, hold on. Hold on. Our king is close. If we focus on numbers, we're going to forget how Christ counts things. And littleness is what attracts him. Weakness attracts the love of the Lord Jesus. I love you, Philadelphia. Weakness attracts the love of Jesus. Like steel attracts magnets. Don't focus on numbers. I know I've kept you. This is longer. I told you. I told you. I told you from the beginning. This is not like other sermons. It is a bit longer, but this is the way I figure it. I could do this in seven sermons and keep you for five hours or whatever that would be, or I could do this one a little bit longer. We've heard six calls from six churches, but there's still one more pastor who hasn't gotten the mic, and that's the pastor of the church in Laodicea. That's the seventh call. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And he stands up and says, stay needy. Stay needy. That pastor would want to start up by, uh, by clearing up the confusion that people have about lukewarm Christianity. He would stand there and say, look, a lukewarm Christian is not what you people keep calling lukewarm Christianity. A lukewarm Christian isn't like the alternative to a Christian who's on fire. This one's lukewarm. This one's on fire for the Lord. A lukewarm Christian, and what Christ is saying to the church in Laodicea, is not about somebody who doesn't think much about Christ, risk much for Christ, or care much about the church. No, the, the, that pastor would say, no, the people that you think are lukewarm Christians aren't Christians at all. And he would say... A lukewarm Christian is a so-called Christian who is proud. It's someone who lives like they don't need Christ at all. I read the passage to you earlier. Let me just give you the background. Laodicean water, Laodicean water was full of calcium, calcium carbonate. In other words, whenever they would take a drink of their own water, 
It would make them want to spit it out. If they actually drank the water, consumed it, and didn't spit it out, it would make them sick. Well, the Laodiceans were a proud people. And so they figured out a solution to their problem. They said, well, let's just pipe in the hot water that we can get six miles away from the hot springs. And then we can get the, get our cold water from Colossae. And we'll pipe that in. Cold water from there, hot water from here. But by the time that their water traveled to Laodicea, the hot was lukewarm and the cold was lukewarm. So they say, you know, we got this. We can figure it out. Well, they didn't got it. Because they had no hot water still to cleanse themselves. And they had no cold water still to refresh themselves. It is that attitude, the Laodicean attitude that the Laodicean church has. That they don't need anyone. That their their efforts can fix their problems. And Jesus says to them, you are useless to me. That kind of church, that kind of Christian is useless. I know your works, verse 15. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Verse 17. For you say I am rich. They're proud. See that? You say I am rich. Listen to their pride. I have prospered. I need nothing. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What he's saying is because you are proud and think you can do everything in your own strength, you are to me what your water is to you, useless. You are spiritually what your water is physically. If anyone tries to get anything good from you, church, they would puke. You disgust me. That's what he's saying. So, Redeemer Church. Listen, when Christ calls, he said, I counsel you to buy from me gold and you will be rich from me, white garments, and you will clothe yourself and all your shame will go away. Redeemer Church, stay needy. We are nothing without Christ. We can do nothing without Christ. Let me say something that would not need, have needed to be said back then. If we're going to hold on to our neediness, we've got to devote ourselves to worshiping the Lord on Sundays and to praying to the Lord on Wednesdays. This is a specific way. It would, it would not need to be said then. It needs to be said now. Come. If we believe we can't live without him, if we believe he has the strength we need, If he's the one we want most, then we're going to structure our life around worshiping him. Church should be the thing we skip other things for. Come on Sundays and come to the prayer meeting. Listen to me. Prayer on Wednesday nights, prayer is the supreme expression of neediness. We only pray about the things we don't trust ourselves to get. Believe me, if we're going to survive all the attacks this world will wage on our souls, 
If we're going to keep faith. Whenever we're doubting and despairing. If we're going to make a difference with this life for eternity. We need strength that we don't have. Our gifts and our skills and our smarts are not enough. We must be those who bank everything on the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay needy. And then we can collect that final reward in verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And with my father on his throne. So this is like a a manual, you could say, these two chapters. A manual for church health. I wonder if you will commit to praying for these things for Redeemer Church. I wonder if you will commit to doing what you can to making sure we keep these things. Don't leave love behind. Be true to the end. Get rid of false teaching. Don't ignore immorality. Don't settle for the, for the illusion of life. Don't focus on numbers. Stay needy. It may not feel like it, but we did cover them quickly. So I want to encourage you, afterward over hospitality or at lunch or sometime this week, talk to one another about these. And answer this question, what, what call did you find most challenging? And ask the question, what reward was most appealing? Let me just leave you with this final question. When Christ calls, will Redeemer respond? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would help us to be a faithful church. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would live for you and trust you and follow you with all of our life. Give us grace to obey these calls, we pray in your name. Amen.